Good morning. Thank you, Becky and Laura. Um, I'm Kathy Gurley. Our text for today is in Hebrews chapter 13. The first, we're going to do the first 17 verses actually. But rather than read the entire passage at the beginning, what I'm going to do is wait and read each verse as we come to it. Um, last week, we read Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, we are part of that heavenly Jerusalem as the church here on earth because we're the church of the firstborn whose names are enrolled in heaven. Because of that, we may boldly, confidently draw near to God's throne of grace, as we had seen in chapter 4. So, the question is, how are we to live as citizens of this heavenly kingdom while we are still here on earth? Our former pastor said that if you ever wondered what the will of God is, here it is right here in Hebrews chapter 13. So with that, I would like to pray and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, thank you that you hold us fast. Thank you that you will never, ever leave us or forsake us. We thank you for Jesus, our precious, precious Savior, who has given his life for us and brought us into your kingdom and before your throne. Father, we thank you for your grace poured out upon us. I pray that you would minister to each of us here this morning, that you would teach us from your words, and that we would leave here as changed women. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, in Hebrews chapter 12 last week, I'm going to use just a little bit of Eric's talk on chapter 12 as kind of a model for something that I want to explain to you today. Um, in chapter 12, Eric talked about who God is and what he has done for us. You remember he explained about the terrifying presence of God, his might, his power, his majesty, the frightening awesomeness, the consuming fire. But then the contrast, the truth of Mount Zion being with God in that the living God in the unshakable kingdom, the new Jerusalem, worshiping with myriads of celestial beings, drawing near because our names are enrolled in heaven because we belong to him. Eric said, we have escaped God's fire through nothing of ourselves. So we see God's boundless love for his own, his incredible sacrifice for, of his own son Jesus, and the amazing efforts that he has gone to to make us his own. Then, and only then, we got what Eric called the responses. Do not refuse him who speaks. Show gratitude. Worship with awe and reverence. So this is the way that God works. He helps us to see his character, his undying love, all the truths about who he is and what he's done for us. Then, after that, then he tells us how he would like us to live. So the absolute truth always come before the duties, the commands, the rules, the laws, the precepts, the statutes, and the decrees. In effect, God fuels our love tank with so much truth about himself until we are overflowing with praise and gratitude in our hearts. 
And then he sets us free to go out and be propelled and empowered by that fuel, his love, to do as he asks, which of course he knows is always for our highest good. So here in chapter 13, we are getting the exhortations and the encouragements for doing things God's way after he's already shown us himself, knowing all that he has previously promised and given to us. So these things are an outworking that has been fueled or powered by all that he's already shown us about himself. So I want you to listen to many of the truths that he has given us previously in Hebrews about Jesus. I started at chapter 1, and I simply went through and listed many of the facts that I found about Jesus. So just listen to these. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He made purification for our sins and sat down, something Old Testament priests could never do because their work was never done. Jesus said, it is finished, and he sat down. He's greater than the angels. He receives worship from them. They are God's ministers to do his bidding, but they fall at Jesus' feet, recognizing his deity. God crowns Jesus with glory and honor. Everything is subject to him. He tastes death for all the sons that he's bringing to glory. He calls his own, his brothers, the children that God has given him. He destroys the power of death by his own death and frees everyone who has been enslaved by death for all their lives. He makes atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus is able to help those who are tempted. He's greater than Moses. He's God's son. He was tempted as we are, but without sin, so he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. As our high priest, Jesus can deal gently with sinners like us. He made perfect is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He made perfect, oh, I just said that. Jesus has gone behind the curtain on our behalf. His priesthood continues forever. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, exalted above the heavens, offered sacrifice once for all when he offered himself. He is the son made perfect forever. He is seated at the right hand of God. And because of Jesus, God has a new covenant with his people. God says, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people and they'll all know me. I will be merciful to their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. And this is all because of Jesus. When Christ came, he entered the holy places by his own blood. His blood is what purifies our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. He's the mediator of a new covenant. Those who are called receive this promised inheritance that we have. Christ entered not into copies of the true things, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, once for all, to put away sin, by the sacrifice of himself. And he will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He came to do God's will. Jesus offered this single sacrifice for sins and sat down at God's right hand. 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He opened the new and living way for us and is now seated at the right hand of God. So now we've heard all this truth of who Jesus is. And now in this chapter, we have the practical, the outworking of these truths, all these ways that others see Christ through us as we feed the hungry, take care of the poor, visit the imprisoned, demonstrate hospitality, and so on. So embedded within these truths in chapter 13 are two extremely strong doctrinal statements that help to fuel our obedience to God's commands. The first is found, uh, well, it's actually the second one, 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in 13.5, I will never, no, never leave you nor forsake you. So the Holy Spirit, by these encouragements, puts gas in our car, so to speak, and gives us the fuel to obey, not only to obey, but to desire to obey. So now we'll go and take these practical exhortations. So verse 1, let brotherly love continue. So continue. They must already be doing it. They must already be showing it. Brotherly love, that's to believers. Galatians 6.10 says, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. And 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So this little wooden angel that you see here, I borrowed from my friend, and it says, angels are often disguised as neighbors. I thought that fit well because I bet every one of us here in this room can think of a time when we were so blessed from our neighbors that it just felt as if God had sent an angel to us, to minister to us. Um, in biblical times, travel was very dangerous, not only to your physical body, but to your possessions. So Christians helped each other but through their hospitality. They took that extremely seriously because it was very necessary. You know in the Old Testament that Abraham, Lot, and Gideon all entertained angels without even being aware of it. Verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. In the first century, Prisons were simply holding places for those awaiting judgment, trial, or execution, but they were horrendous. Just Google Roman prisons, and it is awful. So many of these people, many of their own brothers, were probably in prison due to their faith in Christ. They were probably awaiting execution. So this was a call to minister to those fellow Christians. And prisoners at that time had to depend on family, friends, anyone for their basic needs. Now, we all cannot do everything. We can't feed the poor, take care of the, feed the hungry, take, you know, minister to the poor, visit those in prison. We can't do everything. But each of us can do something. Here at Zionsville Fellowship, there's a prison ministry. Um, we don't feel called to that right now, but we can do small things. We can help bake cookies or make placemats 
One year, we had one of the men from the prison ministry come and teach our little grandchildren about how encouraged the men are from these little placemats that say, God loves you and things like that. And so now, every year when the children come for our grandparent camp, they make a stack of placemats for the prison ministry. People in hospitals, rehabs, nursing homes, they may feel at times as though they are prisoners. And so we can encourage them by our visits and our cards and our prayers. Remember those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Here we are dealing with injustice. Most probably they are dealing with that because of their faith in Christ. Since you are also in the body, what might that mean? Think of your own body. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, you burn your arm on the stove, you crack a rib, you have a migraine, whatever it is, you have to stop and deal with that issue because it affects your entire body until focus on that one injured part to get it back to right again. And so it is with the body of Christ. One part is mistreated, suffering persecution, injustice, unable to get treatment. Those are our brothers and sisters. When they suffer, the whole body suffers. And we have an opportunity to assist. I put two of the major ministries, I love International Justice Mission, that's my most favorite charity, but, and Voice of the Martyrs. They both exist to help mistreated believers. So their websites are on your handout. We may not be called to go, and, to go there, but we can pray, we can send money, we can pack shoeboxes, whatever it is. So I brought this map. I had to take it off my laundry room wall, but it is the voice of the martyrs, the, the world map with the persecuted church. So the countries that are in black are the most highly persecuted, the gray ones are persecuted, and then the ones that are in light color don't make it to the list of persecuted church. Um, our friends in West Africa where we teach, um, even though they are light color on the map, they have much persecution when Muslims become Christians. So even though it doesn't appear as though there's persecution, there's a lot of it. Um, now let me show you this. This is almost 60 pages long. This is a persecution preparedness manual. Um, where we go, every three months, they have a seminar for three days on persecution preparedness. Per to them, uh, persecution means suffering for righteousness. So they're very careful not to put in other things that may not... Darn, I had it. I thought I had it. Oh, yes, here it is. Okay. So they have some lists in here. And so as they're teaching the people, here's a list of things that they can be doing before a crisis happens. One of the main ones they say is memorizing scripture. Then they have lists here, what to do during a crisis. So if you are in persecution, and one of the main things they say is to not return evil for evil and to pray for your persecutors. And then a short list after the crisis and the very last one says, take care of the martyrs' families. It's very sobering. Um, 
I could tell you many sad stories. Most of the ones I know from there are all sad, but I'm going to tell you one with a happy ending, and it doesn't have any brutality in it. So, in the summer of 2016, we were in Gambia at Pastor Modu's church, and there was a man who he asked for the men to come and pray for this man. He, from another country further south, I think it was one of the Guineas, had become a Christian out of Islam and had come to Pastor Modu's church to live in their community and to learn about Christianity. And what had happened, he left his widowed mother in the care of extended family back in his home country and their family farm, and they were to be taking care of it. Well, they didn't take care of the farm at all, and then they stopped taking care of his mother. So this was very difficult because she had no one else. It was, of course, punishment on him because he became a Christian. So Pastor Modu said, now we've raised money and we're helping you. We're going to be praying for you, but you must go back because this is not a good witness for Jesus. So the man went back to his home country, back with his mother and his family farm. And when we were there this summer, I said, Modu, whatever happened to that young man? And I don't even remember what his name was, but Modu said, oh, it's the best story. He said, he went back, he hired young men to help so that they could clear the ground and get the farm back, and they planted crops, and they had it all going, and he was taking care of his mother, and he was working really, really hard. At the end, when they harvested the crops, and it was so wonderful, the tribal chief called everyone in the village together, and he said, Look at this young man. Do you see him? He has worked harder than all the rest of you. You need to be like him. And he said, in fact, we are sending him back there so he can learn more and come and teach you all. So praises to God. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We know, according to God's word, of course, marriage between a man and a woman, no fornication or adultery, and so on. But sometimes we as Christians fail to display the love of Christ in our words and in our actions towards those who think differently about marriage. The answer to today's perversions of God's law is not to berate and condemn, but rather to show the beauty of doing things God's way. God has good reasons for what he asks us to do, and it's always because he knows that's the very, very best for us. God has honored the marriage relationship. In fact, one of the main purposes of marriage is to exhibit a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. So when Christians uphold sexual purity, which is not the norm, this shows the world the difference. A few statistics. Research, research consistently shows that marriage and long-term relationships are good for your physical, mental, and financial health. A study was pu published suggesting that being married boosts your chances of surviving cancer. Studies have associated marriage with a lower risk of disease. Married people tend to smoke less, drink less alcohol, and eat more healthily. And relationships can provide a buffer against the stresses of major life events. Being happily married can also boost your chances of living a long life. When researchers combined the results of numerous studies, they found that husbands and wives were 10 to 15% less likely to die prematurely than the population as a whole. 
A recent study concluded that marriage really does make individuals happier in the long run. The effects were particularly vivid during middle age when people feel the toll of family demands and stress. Indeed, says a study released by the Institute for Family Studies, the benefits of marriage for men are substantial by every conceivable measure. And if you're a wife, you can understand that. If you Google benefits of marriage, you will have more information than you could ever read in a lifetime. Certainly, many men and women are called of God, though, to remain single. And you know the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that they have more freedom to serve the kingdom of God in that case. But certainly, marriage is to be honored among God's people. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's an interesting contest, contrast. Be content because I will never leave you. So here's where this song that we sang first this morning, How Firm a Foundation, comes in. The last verse, which Becky read, and we sang, The soul that on Jesus doth lean for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. In my Bible, I have a note on this from probably a sermon years ago that the Greek has five negatives. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That is very strong. Remember how we've said in the past that biblical repetition is used for emphasis, like highlighting and underlining in all caps and bold and things like that. So this not, may not at first glance seem logical, um, keep free from love of money and be content. Why? Because, because God will give you, provide everything you need and want? No. Because God will give you the biggest and best of everything? No. Because God will never leave you or forsake you. This is his nature. This is who he is. The God who never leaves or forsakes his own. Corey Tinboom, who was imprisoned in Holland for harboring Jews from the Nazis, learned to hold things with her hands open, with her fingers uncurled. Hold things loosely. In John Calvin's Institutes, he discusses God's sovereign authority in our lives. Think of 1 Corinthians 4-7. What do we have that we did not receive? Calvin uses John 3-27, which is very similar, to show that God is the author of everything we receive. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven, says John 3.27. So, in relation to this, Calvin says, We know that prosper or fail, our affairs are ordered by the Lord. The believers should accept whatever comes with a gentle and thankful heart because he knows it has been ordained by the Lord. The rule of godliness is to recognize that God's hand is the sole judge and governor of every fortune and distributes to us whatever he wills according to his orderly righteousness. Contentment, when we show that, we're demonstrating to people that we are trusting in God, not ourselves. We're not striving. We're at peace with God, with ourselves, with others around us, and with our surroundings. We're not comparing, complaining, or criticizing. Prayer will help us to trust God to do things his way in his own time. 
verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Sproul says, our confident response to God's promise to never leave us sets us free from all kinds of fear. God is sovereign and Jesus remains the same. We can be content in knowing that the one who holds all things in his hands filters every event before it reaches us. We had a friend, Larry, who's been in heaven with Jesus for many years now, but he taught us years ago. He said, if you come home and your house is burned to the ground, you say, oh, Lord, look what happened to your house. Verse 7 and verse 17. I put these together, because, and I think we did in our lesson too, because they're both about leaders. Verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So that one probably refers to those who had shared the gospel with them. It seems to be more in the past tense, and they, those people may be dead and gone, but their lives are still imitable. And verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This verse is probably referring to their current living leaders. Whether they realize it or not, whether those leaders' behavior makes them worthy of it or not. That is not even part of the equation. The command is obey and submit. So our leaders, elders, pastors, lay leaders are God-ordained and must give an account to him. Backbiting and gossip and things like that are not God-honoring. A watching world knows that it does not want to be part of us, the church, but it certainly knows how we should be behaving and they watch us. We are to make it a joy for our leaders and not a burden. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hallelujah. We do not have a God who is capricious, fickle, inconsistent, changeable, volatile, unpredictable, or temperamental. No. Listen to some of the characteristics of God from the Psalms. I only took a few. Otherwise, I'd be here all morning. Our God is a mighty rock, a shield around us, the lifter of our head, a stronghold, a fortress, and a deliverer, our strength and our saving refuge. He is righteous in all his ways. He is near to the brokenhearted. He's our help and our deliverer. God is for me. He's exalted above the heavens, awesome in his deeds, the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. He alone does wonderful things. So human leaders may pass from the scene, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. At the very beginning of Hebrews, we read as when God spoke through the prophets. Today, as when we hear his voice and exhort one another daily, and forever. His throne is forever, Jesus is a priest forever, and he's been made perfect forever. Now, think about this, about the priests. You know that Moses' brother Aaron was the first priest. Technically the first high priest, but his sons Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar succeeded him. And then their descendants were the priests and 
through many generations. Now, each priestly family, though, could have this said of him. And he lived for X number of years, and he died. And his son succeeded him. Why? Because of death. They were prevented from continuing as priests by death. But Jesus is a priest forever. No new priests need to be born because Jesus always lives. He's the end of the line, so to speak. No other priest will ever be born because we don't need another one. He's it. He's the one who lives forever, the one who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus the Son has been made perfect forever. Lucas says the word of Christ as a priest has been finished and you are reconciled to God. If you're reconciled, then nobody can do anything to make you more reconciled and more acceptable than what Jesus has already done. Remember how we kept reading in Hebrews, once for all. Verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So at this time, these Christians, because they didn't take part in all the temple rituals and the special foods and so on, then the Jewish people said, well, you have no way to get to God. You don't have any access to him. But the Hebrew author says, no, no, it's grace, not ceremonial foods or special rules that strengthen our hearts by grace. We worship at the heavenly altar. So now you all got a verse card. Did you get this, Galatians 2.16? If you didn't, I'm sure Tana will give you one. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 2.16. If that sounds repetitive, it is. This verse speaks the gospel three times. No works, no rules about makeup or wine or dress or speech. It is Jesus plus nothing. You cannot save yourself by following man-made rules. It's all by God's grace. The grace of God plus nothing on our part. Jesus and Jesus alone. There is nothing additional we can do. Verse 10 and 11, sacrifices. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So the priests in the Old Testament got to eat portions of the sacrificial meats. But Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, has been offered. He's the perfect priest. And the existing priests who were still trying to trust in those um, old sacrifices are not part of this new unshakable kingdom. Jesus is now reigning from heaven. If some people insist still on putting their faith in the Old Testament sacrifices, they're rejecting Jesus. And they have no right to all these heavenly things that he promises to us. In the Old Testament, an animal was sacrificed for its blood. This was the way to restore fellowship with God, which had been broken by sin, like all of us. The animal's bodies had to be burned outside the camp, demonstrating that they were unclean due to the sins of the people. And so then this 
next set of verses, 12 and 13, follows about outside the gate. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he bore. So Jesus was willing to become as an unclean animal for us. He bore our sins and was crucified outside the city. He bore God's wrath that we deserved. He was rejected by the Jewish leaders. So the listeners are also encouraged to suffer outside the gate as Jesus did, bearing reproach, being rejected, but looking forward to a heavenly city. Jesus didn't fit in with or belong to the earthly Jewish kingdom, he was rejected and made to suffer outside the gate. Today, we may be rejected, but we can treat people we disagree with with kindness, respect, and with grace. Verse 14, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The city of man will not endure. Jerusalem was completely destroyed in 70 AD by Rome, and by the way, all the genealogical records as to the priesthood and the Levitical families, they were destroyed. No more sacrifices could be made because the temple was gone, and the one true and perfect sacrifice in Jesus had come. So there's no city here on earth, but we have God's promise of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, what Augustine calls the city of God. Verse 15 through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So through Jesus, we offer this sacrifice, not of goats or rams, but of praise, the praise of our lips. Even though we may be suffering, and I know some of you in this room who are right now, enduring hardship, but we will continually keep our eyes on the Lord and offer him this sacrifice of praise. Many, many years ago, there was a woman who had moved from Zionsville to Bloomington, and her college daughter uh, was killed in a value jet crash on the way to Florida. She was flying down to help her friend drive a car back to Indiana. I've heard this story from so many people. At the daughter's funeral, with tears streaming down her face, this mother held her arms high in praise to God, a very visible and real sacrifice of praise in the midst of her grief. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Not just by our words, but by our actions. What do we have to share? Do you have, ex do you have gifts and talents? Do you have an extra car, an extra room, an extra hour to help someone in the body? A brother in our, in our body? God is pleased when we, we use these things to honor him because Jesus says the world will know that us by our love, the world will know us by our love for each other, that we belong to Jesus. And he says that all these things that we do for others, for those in his body, the saints, our brothers and sisters, we're actually doing them for him, for our Lord. So um, I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we have a video of a great hymn being sung. It takes place in the Royal Albert Hall in London very majestic. We begin this lesson today talking about the majesty of God. We've been thinking about the contrast between our earthly and our heavenly home. One line in this hymn says, 
but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. So I hope that you, I mean, this is not a heavenly thing, but I hope that you will experience this sense of grandeur. Dear Father God, may your Holy Spirit take these words. May you use your word, which is the living truth, and just penetrate our hearts with it. Father, give us a heart for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering and those right here in our midst who are suffering, that you might use us to be an angel to them. We just pray that you would receive all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So feel free, if you, feel free to sing if you would like to, and please stand. <laughs>